Welcome to Talking Sense, the podcast where we discuss all things detection dogs. Broadcasting from Scent City, Las Vegas, and the Silver State Canine Training Center, your host, Cameron Ford. Hello, I'm your host, Cameron Ford, and welcome to episode eight. On this episode, I interview Mike Herstick, and we go over things such as science, pseudoscience, as well as many life lessons he has gone through personally and in the dog training world uh, related to his experiences working with the Israeli military, also as a trainer for law enforcement. We have had many good, lively discussions on my Facebook page throughout the time uh, over the past year or so. Mike and I have been engaging in some great conversation uh, on all kinds of topics. So I wanted to use this interview to kind of cover those things and then some. So with that said, I hope you guys enjoy the episode. If you have any questions, of course, feel free to reach out to me at Ford, F-O-R-D, at SilverStateK9.com. Hello, this is Cameron Ford from Talking Sense. On today's episode, interviewing Mike Hertzik. Mike and I have actually known each other for a number of years, but actually came face to face about a year ago and, and really got to uh, spend some time and have had some great conversations throughout this past year, um, just due to the fact that we have so many things in common. And a lot of the things that I bring up recently on my either the podcast or my social media things has been stuff that Mike has been doing and bringing around for a long time. And through all those conversations he and I have had, uh, one of the first things that got us kind of bonded was we use a very similar methodology with marker training and detection dogs with a difference that where some people would look at it and go, wow, that's very different. But Mike and I both know it's slightly different. And, uh, so, Mike, with you, um, you know, I use mine as a uh, release marker. So, when the dog hears for me the word free or yes, the dog's released to come to get reward. But for you and in, in your system, it's a duration marker. Um, but first, you know, as you get into that, I don't want to get too far ahead. Just give us a little bit of background about yourself, and then I'll let all you right. go ahead and answer that question. Well, first of all, thank you for having me on here, and thank you. I always enjoy speaking with you. It's always refreshing. Uh, to speak with another trainer um, who is experienced and has a track record. And it, you know, but uh, just going into my background real briefly here, um, uh, I, um, my experience includes, I ran a very large scale project uh, for Israel prior to the Iraqi war. It was uh, the time period of the second intifada. Intifada means uprising. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, there was a tremendous amount of, for lack of a better word, carnage going on at the time. Virtually every week, there were serious, serious bombings. And um, uh, people were just getting murdered, you know, all the time over there. Uh, and, and everyone in the country had been touched by that. It was just mm -hmm. epidemic, the, number, the amount of bombing that was going on. So... One of the um, strategies in hardening that target was to start a large-scale canine program. Um, and uh, I was appointed to direct the program. Um, I'm um, Israeli by birth, 
and um, I was raised in the U.S., but I have a very strong connection with the country. And I had developed training methodologies, um, and I was tasked with leading the project, training uh, uh, trainers for the Special Forces Canine Unit, known as OCETS, um, for the National Police, the Border Police, and we established a uh, semi-private entity under the auspices of the Ministry of Transportation for the bus lines. The bus lines were being attacked. Um, and the project was very successful. It helped um, uh, greatly mitigate the targets. Um, that combined with the fact that the wall was finally built on the border there uh, so that it was no longer a porous border. Um, uh, greatly, you know, just tremendously reduced the number of attacks uh, to the country. And it, it was a very successful project. I was awarded a national commendation from Israel uh, for my role in the project and helping make the country more secure. Um, the, the great benefit of that project was it was the ultimate laboratory. All right. We got to see what worked and what didn't work. In, in life and death scenarios, not it wasn't so much speculative, as as you know, Cameron. In law enforcement, they always draw upon frame of reference from past experience and learn from that, and apply that in, in learning to the next experience. Um, prior to nine eleven in this country, we really didn't have a great frame of reference as far as the utilization of explosive detection canines. The methodology, in my opinion, was very primitive uh, up till that point. And we have learned more about um, uh, the craft, the skill, the art, the science of it since 9-11 than, you know, historically up till that moment. Since in the last 20 years, a lot was invested into this field. Uh, a lot was invested in, in the deployment of canines and in the monitoring um, and in the science of it. And we, we just have learned so much. Now, in Israel, we really had uh, the opportunity to learn from experience. Um, I was able to bring that experience back here to the United States. And um, I was training law enforcement here since then. And it was very rewarding to see a lot of the concepts and ideas that were developed during that period um, spread internationally um, to the point of where uh, I think the origins, <laughs> it's kind of a joke. It's like people don't even realize where this originated. It's, it's passed through so many hands at this point. But the, the great benefit is it's in, the industry was improved, I think, as a result of that. So, um, yeah. I'll, uh, before we segue into something else, I'm going to pass the mic back to you, Cameron, <laughs> with some other questions here. No, and, and what you bring up is what obviously you know I had when working with the uh, Navy SEAL program was we had to have methodologies that would work in the real world, not just something that we hoped would work. And we had to have a sound system based on psychology and that in turn created that reliability that despite the conditions, the variables, any number of things would work at a high probability. 
And that forced me back then to make my adjustments to, you know, segue more into that, uh, the marker bridge system that you and I right. uh, connect with, because we both have seen, and, and because we were forced into real world situations that other things uh, that were out there were problematic and were not as reliable. As Based on speculation. Yeah. 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 So we found that system that uh, became more reliable, which was, you know, utilizing a bridge and that bridge led to reward mm-hmm. versus the dog just trying to figure out and or guess when the handler may or may not deliver this reward. So, um, you know, like we talked about, for me, it's, you know, my bridge comes in just before as a release to the reward where yours is duration. So if you don't mind, discuss a little bit about how, you know, for those that have seen some of the videos that Mike's have, or after this podcast, you go look up Mike and we'll let you know how to reach get a hold of them or see some of these things. But what he does with the clicker is when the dog alerts, he clicks. The dog maintains that position, that behavior until they reward. So if you don't mind, go ahead and kind of just give a little sure. bit of a, a description of that. Well, first of all, the key to all of this, as I always explain to handlers and people who work with the dogs, with their dogs, is the key to all of this is making it so simple that a dog understands. Because that, that, I think, is the biggest thing when we work with dogs. We make it too complicated. We expect them to understand everything, you know, all of our communication and all of that. And that oftentimes just creates stress in an animal mm-hmm. and confusion. Um, depending on the type of dog we're working, sometimes that turns into aggression. You know, when we're yeah. working with high drive Malinois and we're expecting, they, they don't understand what we want, we're stressing them, and they end up redirecting on their handlers as a result of that. Or a source, yeah. Right, yeah, it becomes, it becomes a uh, learned behavior on the animal's part. So we want to do things in a manner that help the dog to understand. And that's always the first step of teaching something, is creating an understanding between the animal and ourselves. When we teach a dog to sit, we want it to understand that that means put your rear end down on the ground, you know, and look at us, or not necessarily look at us, but to put their rear end down on the ground. Um, you know, and, and that's the first step. And of course, the second step is to develop proficiency or to condition the animal mm-hmm. uh, in the behavior so that we start to develop reliability and we start to develop um, proficiency uh, in, in the exercise. And then the third step, is that we develop um, reliability, reliability around distraction mm-hmm. and such, you know, so that we can count on the animal to perform its tasks. Now, when we talk about my application of the marker, first of all, the marker, um, when it's used as a reinforcement tool, does not tell the animal what to do. Um, The dog does not respond with a behavior. What it does is it tells the animal that what it's doing at that moment is correct and that the reinforcement is coming. Mm -hmm. And by doing that, it eliminates stress, it eliminates confusion in the dog and brings in confidence and solid response. So that when it's used as a reinforcer, and the dog understands it as a reinforcer, and that's part of the methodology is creating that understanding. Um, 
when I when my dog uh, is in training and I'm teaching it to respond to an odor when I'm imprinting it and um, it comes to the odor and um, uh, it's at the stage where I've gotten it, it comes to the odor and it sits, maybe there's some insurance there. Maybe the dog is moving around on its indication. But when I click, the dog is programmed. It's like a button I have programmed into the side of the dog. And I push that, metaphorically, I push that button and it says to the animal, you have now done the right thing at this moment. This is what you are doing at this moment is correct. Maintain this behavior. Your reward is coming. And so that when I click um, on the dog, it eliminates stress, it eliminates confusion, and sends a clear message mm -hmm. to the dog that it is right. And the dog will hold the position until it receives a cue to release. All right? And it, it um, and it brings solidity there. Mm -hmm. Now, it also generalizes into other things, the use of the clicker. For example, um, when a dog is misidentifying odor and false alerting on it. Mm -hmm. um, and this is where I use the wall. The wall works very well in this, the Herstic wall that I developed. Mm -hmm. And th th that wall was developed, by the way, during the Israeli project. Okay. And there's, you know... It's become so commonplace now. People don't even believe that I developed it at this sure. point. That's what happens. <laughs> you know, it's kind of funny. Dog guy, you've been around a while, right? Yeah, they, and they're like, "Oh no, I've been using it for ten years." I'm like, "Well, yeah, I believe it." Yeah, that's because I developed it over twenty years ago. Sure. Um, and the methodology behind it, for example, when I use a clicker, um, we expose the dog, let's say, to distractor odors, and we work the dog through the distractor odors. Using an extinction protocol where the dog isn't rewarded for the distractors, it doesn't get any response whatsoever for those, for those distractors, and then it comes to the correct odor, and it receives the click. All right, The click has now made it very clear to the dog, this is right. I didn't get anything for those other distractor odors. This is the right odor. It reinforces the behavior. I like to explain the clicker or the marker in a method of, you know, now uh, many of us use e-collars in training, not necessarily so much for detection work, but just in canine work. The e-collar is a very uh, excellent tool, in my opinion, as all professionals know. Non-professionals may argue against it, but uh, those of us who do law enforcement work and military work you know, we have to be more pragmatic about these things, not as idealistic. And um, it is an extremely powerful reinforcer. Uh, it is based, you know, on negative stimuli. It's a powerful negative stimuli reinforcer. You know, it's an avoidance tool, etc. But um, the clicker is just the opposite end of the spectrum, and yet is the same thing. It's a powerful reinforcer. So just as with an e-collar, our timing has to be just right to send that reinforcement message. The same thing with the clicker. The skill is in the timing. And the beauty of why I prefer a clicker over a verbal, by the way, is, is in that, is, is because of the timing. The clicker is more concise than a verbal. It's more um, succinct than a verbal. The dog, it's more consistent, and the dog 
I believe, learns with it. For a learning tool, the dog learns with it quicker. And it's funny you bring that up because many times when I'm doing my trainer's courses or handler's courses, and the, the first whole day is clicker. So I put the clicker in their hand and they're learning their timing. They're learning all these things. Right. And the funny part is uh, their timing and so forth is actually better when the clicker's in their hand than it is when I give have them use a verbal bridge. And it's, yeah. it, it's funny how just because you put a device in someone's hand, their timing gets better versus something that's internal. They don't have to carry it. They don't have to do anything with it. All they have to do is say a word. Their timing is off. And it's, is it's a funny thing when you look at the anomaly of that. You would think that something you don't have to have on you or manually do anything with, all you got to do is say a word, and you would figure that would be better. But actually, in, in all actuality, when you have a device in your hand, people are actually better at the timing of the mark. Well, it's simpler. It's really simpler. Mm-hmm. Just pushing a button. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a simpler thing. Now, um, the thing about it is you don't want to have to be, form a dependency you know, in the methodology I use, there is no dependency to the clicker. It is a learning tool. Right? Mm-hmm. It is faded out in the foundation process, and you no longer use it. Mm-hmm. Well, I say you no longer use it unless you encounter problems later on, where the dog is confused, the dog is stressed, maybe it's false alerting on incorrect odors, whatever it is. It needs, it needs um, uh, remediation of some sort. Sure. The clicker is an excellent tool, and I bring it back into the picture, mm-hmm. which is the same concept as simply going back to foundation training to remediate a problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, the biggest problem in training in general, and I think you're going to 100% agree with me on this, Cameron, is lack of foundation. Absolutely. You know, um, guys are out there, and they've got the dogs out there doing scenarios before they're really conditioned and ready for that. And if you move too fast through the uh, foundation, you know, you you seem to encounter problems absolutely throughout the working life of the dog. And, and we both know and, some uh, of these agencies. Uh, you know, these timelines they're under aren't necessarily timelines. created by them by the by them, but their agency or another program exists. And yeah. So all of a sudden now there is this preconceived notion that oh, every dog can be trained within this time frame, and we all know every dog is different. Uh, yeah. How the handlers operate are different, and if you lock yourself into that timeline it's problematic whereas the people who do detection for sport they go at the pace of whatever works for their dog so therefore right. they end up having in a lot of times uh, a lot better foundation and especially a lot more foundation or no more time on their foundation than the professional dog handler does because unfortunately professional means money and whether it's an right. agency's time and effort or a company that needs to have people trained in their boots on the ground at a location that time gets dictated and it's not always the best for the dog or the best for the training. So absolutely right. You know, too much, too much, too often there's not enough foundation. for them. They're not under the burden of, of the, of time schedules and time pressure. Mm-hmm. And that is a great advantage. Uh, the only thing I will say though, is I prefer working with professionals because of the accountability factor. Um, there's, you know, the professionals, uh, that I work with, the law enforcement canine handler, they ha- they are subject to accountability for their training. Uh, there's no, I don't feel like doing this, or no, they, they it's a job, so they must dedicate themselves to it. Um, it's not um, a hobby. So I do prefer working with professionals on that note for that reason. That's my preference. And, and, and that's really a personality thing, I think, 
as you know, yeah, yeah. because, um, you know, most people aren't really suited uh, to deal with that or don't have the right aptitude for it. But aptitude varies so much, you know, and it, it does affect things. Yes, absolutely. And, and, yeah. and speaking of timing, what I'll bring up is a question that gets asked, and I'm sure you get asked all the time, when they're implementing and using the marker-based system, clicker, verbal, whatever it is, some get concerned with, well, what if I mark or I click on the wrong at the wrong time? Or let's right. just say I mark or click on a wrong item or substance. Is it going right. they there's a mentality or a thought process that people have that they feel they're gonna they've ruined the dog. And that's <laughs> and that's furthest from the truth. You know, well I was tell I always tell them, yes, you just did. Um <laughs> but, really nervous. <laughs> and don't do it again. Yeah. But um, <laughs> no, but we both know that it's this is a conditioning process. Absolutely. And dogs aren't conditioned one way or the other through one, one rep. error. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's conditioning is, you know, um, you know, through repeated work mm -hmm. and time. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it takes a few weeks really to condition a behavior, yep. you know? So, um, uh, you know, some dogs are more forgiving than others, but obviously one error. Yeah. Uh, I don't know anyone who trains a dog without making errors. Absolutely. No, I mean, except for myself, perhaps, but you know, you sound like somebody else I know. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. Except, except I'm joking no, about no, of course. it. No, I know <laughs> yeah. the, uh, but you know, and that, and that's, uh, you know, as I've seen some of the trainers who've been, you know, doing this for a number of years, they all look at the marker system and go, wow, that does make my life a whole lot easier. But we, as humans, are creatures of habit. And the minute they encounter right. something that's different than, and they don't know how to problem yeah. solve, they retreat back yeah. to the system they used to know and just go, well, I'm comfortable over here. We must, we must never do that, really. Correct. You know, I mean, as intelligent human beings, we must, you know, keep learning, keep moving forward. That is a, I, I call that getting petrified. And, you know, I don't know, I've known you know, people who were medical doctors, older medical doctors, but they didn't use a computer mm -hmm. because they weren't used to it. Yep. And I said, you know, this is an intelligent person. They just choose not to. It's what we choose to do. You know, this is, talking about the marker and talking about all this, as I, you know, the terminology, the term I use for this is that our work is a combination of science, craft, and art. Yep. I always emphasize those three mm -hmm. things. And you need all three. Um, the art of it is the interesting part, I think, because you can study and learn the craft. You can study and learn the science. But the art of it comes really from experience, from frame of reference. And the art of it is things like, is the judgment, mm -hmm. is, is uh, timing of reinforcement, um, uh, knowing what, how to problem solve and apply your knowledge at different, you know, from moment to moment, because as we're training, right, when you're training a handler, Cameron, mm -hmm. you're giving them directions and the handler's looking at you half the time saying, didn't you just tell me something different a minute oh, ago? Oh yeah, that happened. You, you, we both and and you're looking time. and you're trying to explain to them, yeah, well, it, the dog just changed in, over the last minute uh -huh. and we had to, we had to adjust to what we, you know, to what we saw the dog doing. It's it's a free flowing it's a free free flowing process in a way. Oh, it's so tough, especially you know, when you have so. multiple trainers working together to train a class. 
because you'll be with That's one right. trainer who's saying do this and then the handler rotates over to the other trainer and that trainer ends up telling that handler to do the complete opposite of what the last guy said. I don't think that's a good idea to do that. Yeah, no, and, and yeah. but unfortunately we both know it's the nature of the business sometimes where they're cycling all these people through stations, let's say, and it does. It, it creates that conflict in the handlers, which is confusion and causes stress and then it goes down the path. And I totally agree with you. It, the, the classes, when, when ideal need to have a, you know, which is I'm lucky I'm at now, you know, you have one primary instructor, you know, right. This is, this is the, this is what's going on. This is how we're doing it. If you got questions, Lead instructor. Me, yeah, exactly. And, uh, because we, like you just said it on a minute ago, as the dog's learning, it's figuring out what works through reinforcement. And as it does, it's going to try things. And, as it tries these different things, it eventually figures out what it wants. Well, if I have a handler who's also trying to figure out things and they get given conflicted information, talk about the level of confusion up and down that leash that, that happens. Right. So, yeah, yeah, no, it, it, it's not, it, it, you know, there are difficulties in training and instructing teams. And uh, that is really a skill. Yeah. Um, and, you know, oftentimes, it creates a little frustration in the handlers of the learning process, but they have, you know, really to, in order to do that role, they have to be patient mm -hmm. and, um, and willing to learn. Yep. You know, you can't be, uh, um, argumentative and, and challenging all the time. You can ask questions. Sure. Um, I always say that everything, when, when I train a handler, I will say, you know, everything I teach you, is, has to make sense to you. If for any reason I'm telling you to do something or teaching you something and it doesn't make sense, feel free to question me on it. Sure. I said, because, and I want you to believe in what we're doing. Um, don't argue with me in the middle of, you know, handling the dog, mm -hmm. but, but talk to me about it. I want you to understand why we're doing it and what the, what the method is behind the madness. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that I've done that for years and that seems to work, you know, I mean, uh, yeah, training, you know, handlers and trainers in Israel, um, that was, uh, that was an interesting experience. The first month was, uh, you know, arguing and fighting. And then after that, <laughs> everybody finally came around and said, you know what, this is goal. making sense. Yeah. yeah. This is making sense, you know, now. And it, it takes a while for people to realize that. I've had a lot of handlers tell me that. At first, it didn't make sense oh, to them. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, it was like a light lit up over their head, and they got yeah. it. No, I see that all the time, but, um, yeah. either even new and experienced. So I'll ask, right. I'll ask one more question on Marcus before I, tra I transition into a different topic. But so, yeah. like you talked about you know, how you use your clicker for duration. How do you go in the, in the process as you're – because naturally, when you click in the beginning, the dog will look towards you or, or – react to that yeah how do you work right. through that phase of it when you're doing that to build it so that way despite how do I, the click happening the they focus stay focused. On the odor mm -hmm. when he hears the click yeah. yeah it's actually not an overly complicated process and i really should save that for uh the online platform teaching platform okay sure doing. so go, so go ahead and right leave now. a nugget here so that it leads to that yeah I'll, I'll leave a nugget basically um it's it's in the proper protocol and utilization okay. of the wall of the heuristic wall. Gotcha. All right, because um, when we are using the wall, um, there there is no machine on the wall mm -hmm. or anything. 
it is a, a, the dog, when he puts his nose in that hole, his nose is an inch away mm -hmm. from the odor. There's a barrier mm -hmm. there. It keeps him from getting to it. But he's getting concentrated odor in that tube. Mm -hmm. There's nothing else in the tube. There is no ball. There is no machine, yep. anything. Yep. So they learn very quickly uh, that it's odor. And then the reward comes from the source mm -hmm. on my cue. Mm -hmm. All right? It's closed up. Yeah. Everything's closed up. The odor's closed up. And both the click and the reward mm -hmm. come from the source. So they're paired yep. immediately and perfectly. Yep. Odor, primary and secondary reinforcement are perfectly paired that way. Mm -hmm. The learning is so quick. Um, it's quicker than handing them the oh, ball yeah. through a box. Absolutely. It's quicker than, um, you know, with the machine, you, you, you know, there's all kinds of side effects. Oh, fortunately, machines control. work, yeah. but there's side effects. Yeah, the impulse control side goes effects. to hell. Yeah. Well, as you mentioned, there's there's the click in the machine yep. that they start to um, the machine makes noises, um, and this machine has its own scent. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, you want the major vapor headspace to clearly be the target odor when he puts his nose in that. Absolutely, hole. not a machine and not not a ball or a Kong toy. Yeah. It, you know, that's stuffed in there with oh, it. Yeah. Um, but you want to pair it immediately. Mm -hmm. So the click comes from there. It is transitioned from the wall to the hand. Mm -hmm. You know, and uh, uh, basically when the handler clicks, the ball comes out of the wall. Yeah. No, I, I've watched so, it and I, I said, yeah. as both of us, you know, fully understand the marker bridge system. It's awesome to see it used in the two different aspects. And, you know, I love watching it in your system and you and I have talked about it in the release system and, you know, and there's the pros and cons, uh, that, you know, I've learned as I've gone through it when teaching handlers how to use it. And they're only and the main reason why I've used a verbal one for as long as I have is just because of the necessity first with the teams that I knew having a handler go out. And, you know, we, we both know a lot of times handlers even forget their damn toy. Right. So not only yes. worrying about them forgetting their toy, but forgetting a, a tool for communication. So yes. in this sense, it, it created a way that we weren't ever going to forget that. Uh, well, always with and them. we phased out of the clicker very early sure, in the foundation. Yeah, yeah. No, I, so it, it, you, we didn't even need either. to bring yeah, anything. Correct. Yeah. And, yeah. and unfortunately, right. the, the byproduct of the system I was in, we had... A, again, like everybody else, a set time to get you know somebody ready with a, mm -hmm. a many times too a, a dog that was already handled by another handler or sometimes even right. two other handlers before this one got it. So you right. know, as as we all have, whether it be law enforcement, military, what have you, have to make adjustments due to the the system you're given or the tools that you're given. Um, right. But within that, if you're applying solid science-based information and, and training techniques, it really reduces the headaches or the issues you deal with because now you're just, you know, redoing it. Just it's a new delivery. So the, in this case, it's a handler. The, the handler is now doing it. It's just a different handler than it was before. The system and the methodology is the same. So the dog just kind of gets used yeah. to sometimes the nuances of that new handler and what they do and how they do it or their voice inflection and, and stuff like that. But, yeah, the behavioral concepts are basically, yeah. you know, um, it's based on on Skinnerian yep. concepts, uh -huh. you know, really. So, 
um, yeah, it just works well. So speaking, and, uh, go ahead, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, no, say, so speaking ahead. on our on our uh, uh, Skinnerian and, and terminology and things like that, you and I have had some great discussions on pseudoscience. And yeah. as people have, again, seen through the social media feed, I constantly challenge people on basically beliefs. Does your belief have data and science behind it? Or are you just believing something right. because you just were told that and no one's ever showed you anything different? But yet the passion behind the belief is super strong. Um, just give some examples of some of the things yeah. that you see commonly where the pseudoscience has directly affected the detection dog world. Well, first of all, you know, when we're talking about science, we need to understand, and, and as simple as this might sound, we need to understand the difference between science and anecdote. Because as you know, I made, a, I made a reference to somebody's knowledge as anecdotal, mm -hmm. and they became highly insulted. Yeah. No, I, <laughs> like, well, I don't think they understood what the word yeah, meant. it wasn't an insult um, by any stretch. You were just trying yeah, to say that's no. not that right way. And yeah. all it, you know, most of the knowledge in the canine world is anecdotal. All right, and has been until relatively recently. Really, we've well now we're starting to see sci real science come in here, and um, uh, you know, anecdotal is simply not proven under empirical evidence. Is all that means? Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that anecdotal knowledge is wrong because I think probably the vast majority of anecdotal knowledge in the canine world is very good. It's really good. Um, but a certain percentage of it is just old wives' tales, all right? Yep. And we see this disproven all the time. And we've just got to be careful not to get stuck with these old wives' tales. An example of old wives' tales. Um, recently, I was on a thread that I was really amazed to read. Mm -hmm. It was a discussion about whether scent always falls. Okay. Right? And... I was like, do people really still believe that at this point? <laughs> Scent always falls. Mm -hmm. You know, oh, yeah. um, all these people were arguing and saying, well, you know, they were showing how this, you know, in science and they were challenging the science of it and all. And I was like, my gosh, has anybody seen smoke rise? Yep. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, what is smoke? Large carbon, I mean, you know, vaporous particles. And what and they say that well it falls because it's particles was the logic behind okay. that. I'm like, well that's funny. Yeah. What are these large particles that I can see with my bare eye? Yeah. Carbon particles rise up in the air. Mm -hmm. You know, as smoke. Yeah. And it's because they're affected by thermal conductivity. Yep. You know, they're why do they move through the air? They're affected by um you know, by air current, by thermals. And the funny part you know? is people like you said because are there uh, substances where the particulates coming off do fall? Sure, but you can't make that blanket statement that across everything, because every substance reacts differently, or the volatility in the headspace and all of that is, is very different based on the substance, let alone the conditions. In a vacuum. Yeah. <laughs> in a vacuum, mm -hmm. you know, yes, you know, anything that has. Um, a vapor density, you know, when we're talking about, when we're talking about odor uh, from a material, we're talking about vapor pressure and vapor density. And it's not really as complex as it sounds. Um, when you think about a vapor pressure is simply the amount of vapor that 
the item is giving off. The vapor density is the weight of that vapor, you know, whether it rises or falls. Now, anything that has a vapor density that is higher than air is going to fall in a perfect setting, in a perfect setting. But there are, you know, very few perfect I settings say, now. I very rarely ever come across the perfect setting. Well, uh, sometimes within, let's say, a box, a really contained setting, you know, the vapor is going to pool. That's why we see vapor pooling, right? But even inside a building, if there's warmth, it's going to rise. If it's cold, it's going to go down. You know, we know that because um, of the conductivity. Now, but in real life application, it's important to know these things because to think it always falls is going to get you in trouble. And, you know, when I teach handlers, you know, we're walking, uh, you know, they're working in certain situations, certain venues, and there's drain pipes um, in those venues. And it's a hot day. And I'll put something inside the drain pipe, which, you know, goes up. And where is that scent going? Well, that drain pipe becomes like a vacuum cleaner. Becomes like a vacuum. Uh, the thermal conductivity is making the air rise up through it. And that's sucking the, the odor up in there. And their dog's not going to smell it unless they put their nose right up to it. You know, they can miss that odor. So when that's part of the handler training. They have to be aware of um, how scent, you know, the properties of how uh, scent behaves. And a, a good handler knows, well, I better check those pipes, you know, as I'm working through this area with their bomb dog, you know, because he's not going to smell it from 10 feet away. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Silver State Canine. Silver State Canine is the industry leader when it comes to canine handler and trainer schools. Are you somebody looking to embark on the career as a detection dog handler? Well, contact us for one of our handler schools. Are you already a handler and you're looking for that next step in becoming a canine trainer? Contact us for one of our trainer schools. Silver State Canine prides itself on being an industry leader when it comes to applying science and psychology to canine training methods. This way, when you come to us and go through our training, you can leave here knowing that you are on the cutting edge of the canine industry when it comes to handling and training. Visit our website, www.silverstatecanine.com. That's www.silverstatek9.com. Or contact us, area code 702-629-3986. 702-629-3986. Or follow us on Facebook or Instagram. Don't miss out on the world's largest law enforcement canine training conference coming to the McCormick Center in Chicago, Illinois this August. HITS has the most diverse class schedule to fit your training needs. And with over 100 vendors, you'll find everything you need to gear up for your next shift. Register today and save at www.hitscanine.net. A perfect example of what you're talking about, um, myself and another very good friend of mine that works in a drug unit went through the same thing. Storage units, you know, when there was times of day that we were searching the storage units, we weren't getting any hits. And it was typically, this is Florida, so it's the heat of the day, and we weren't getting anything. But all of a sudden, just by chance, it was searching in the early evenings, and the alerts that were happening uh, had increased quite a bit, and we were making good finds. And and finally, we basically all figured out, well... I mean, Cloud of vapor. Yeah, yeah, well, 
and it's like a gas can. As it heats up during the day, it, the odor is not leaving that thing. So as it cools down, though, as the day cools down, that air is pushing out of those out of that space like crazy. So we had also it's also lowering. It's yeah. also going from the ceiling out the, it, the, of the cloud unit lower. where we were walking by right. with the dogs. So right. the right. the dogs nose level. Yes. Yeah. So we were getting much better. You know, all we had to do was adjust the time of day when we went and conducted our our screening for those areas, yeah. and it made it yeah, highly successful. Yeah. But again, we were knuckle dragging cops, not even considering example. why that was happening until we figured it out. And the funny part is, like I said, the good friend of mine, Andy, had gone through the same thing in his area, and he said this, you know, the same thing happened to them. So it's right. it, again, this is where because you know we have to learn from things yeah, like and that. that's you know, we're like, well, duh, you should know that this is how this works, you know. And right. we're like, oh yeah, you're right. That makes perfect sense. Yeah. No, and, it, and it's yeah. stuff like it's, what you what you've gone through. I mean, you hit a couple things already, where, um, you know, those of us have been doing it twenty plus years. Like you said earlier, science really wasn't in our space at all. In fact, most times, professional dog handlers and trainers, you know, basically said, "Oh, those scientists and stuff like that don't know what they're doing." It's a totally different environment. Resistant exactly. to science, and yeah. you'd been sounding the alarm. And, and trying to bring in science a lot a long time ago, and it was of course met with that same style of resistance. Now, all of a sudden, me and you joke around how I make some of the same arguments you've made years ago, and it's received yeah. differently. And that's because we're I always make the reference. Ready yeah, I make the reference nowadays yeah. in these podcasts and things that the detection dog world is in a transformation, renaissance period, whatever you want to call it. We're, we are no longer right. able to operate in that assumed. Just because in a world we now have to have validation through uh, actual data that says this works right. or this doesn't work, and that's only growing more and more. And then, as you as we just talked about here, the pseudoscience that is out there is starting to be pointed yeah. out even more. Rev- it stands out a whole lot more because yeah. um, you know people you know have nothing to back that up with, and now there's the research that right. really does help with that. Um, so what's so? I'll joke around with you here. What is pseudoscience? Yeah, no, right? What are some of yeah. the pet peeves that you typically see, either in terminology, just to help listeners understand proper terminology? Let's say for when the you know the the post I just put last night was you know labels, um, terms, and definitions. Uh, we have all these different labels, terms, definitions for all these different types of things. So I put the question of when a dog comes into trained target substance it responds and it's you know trained behavior this way what's that called and then i also said the dog does the same behavior however right. there's no target substance present at all what's that called and as we both know that the, right. already the list was you know varying from you know one term to the other but uniformity with you know we we all kind of need to come up with uh, or not come up with but follow the proper definitions or terms so that way like you, you know, some have said we you know, when we're on the stand or yeah. we're trying to describe something we're doing so with actual proper terms so what are some things that stand out to you that are always a misconception or, or a misterm well you know, i try not to get too stuck on terminology i i, I have a little problem with the fact that some people uh, seem to make a career out of terminology, oh, yeah. you know? And I, I try to talk to them, and they're just going on and on with terminology. 
and yet have no hands-on mm-hmm. skills to understand what that terminology means. But, you know, I have preferences in terminology, and I agree, you're right, it does, there does need to be more standardization so that we're all speaking the same yeah. language. However, arguments about terminology, I think, are, you know, we don't... It becomes a waste of time yeah, in the uh, sense. It becomes a waste of time, yeah. And I want to get back to working uh, hands-on. But, you know, for example, what you said about the um, what's commonly referred to as a false alert. I think, you know, the term that I've heard that best describes it is a non-productive yeah. alert. Um, and um, non-productive in the sense that we're not, uh, you know, we're not discovering any target mm-hmm. material as a result of that alert. You know, and there there can be so many reasons for that, of course. It can be residual odor. It can be um, uh, common um, odor signatures, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. components that are uh, in an explosive that are uh, inert um, or ambient. Um, It can be novel odor. Um, You know, we can define it. You know, we can break down a non- productive alert and and I, I have an article that I wrote on that and you can you can go to my website and you can read the articles I wrote but you know we're, a non-productive alert can be broken into um, uh, a number of reasons that make sense and the reasons can be unrelated um, except for the fact that it, they produce a non-productive yeah. alert you know so uh, you know yeah, the biggest problem I have is with pseudoscience is not so much the terminology as the concepts that are put out. And I always say that because someone may even have a scientific mm-hmm. degree, that doesn't mean that everything that comes out of their mouth is science. Sure. All right, and you know one of the problems is is that where we see pseudoscience, we usually see it connected to a vested interest, as mm-hmm. I've said before. Because science is really objective, right? That's what it's supposed to be. Oftentimes it's not, you know. Um, uh, We see this, you know, whenever we uh, mix commercialism and science. But um, but that that doesn't just, I'm not just talking about the dog industry. I'm talking about pharmaceuticals. I'm talking about all sorts of things in the world. But, um, uh, you know, we have to look at the objectivity of the uh, of the mm-hmm. science and the methodology mm-hmm. you know because real science is objective you know when you do double blind studies Absolutely. they're objective uh, they're not necessarily give you all the answers because they could be con- they could be conducted from different points sure. of view and in different settings um and one of the science is a major component one of the things about science what it does is it provides us with information and the problem is when it crosses the line and scientists are telling us how to do our hands-on work. So I had the opportunity to work with some fantastic scientists. Uh, Dr. James Smith, um, who was employed by the FBI, but was a neuroscientist. And he was a mentor of mine. He, w- he was my mentor, I would say. And uh, I learned so much from him. I, you know, unfortunately, he passed last November. But... Um, uh, he was a great resource, and uh, you know, for all of his genius, he would never once think to tell me how to actually train the dog. He would simply share information with me, 
that I could then decide on how to apply it. You know, uh, science arms us with information is what it does. Um, it doesn't tell us, you know, and I think when it crosses the line and tells us how to perform things um, or sets up uh, rules and regulations for how we should train dogs, that's when it really crosses the line. Its job is to educate and to share knowledge. And oftentimes what pseudoscience does is usually it just sells products, you know, under the guise of science. And that's, that's a real problem. Um, and it makes false yeah, statements. No, and I'll bait yeah. you right into the, the main thing that, you know, is a common theme and discussion within our detection dog world, which is the manufactured training substances used for dogs versus substances that the dogs locate in the real world environment. And, uh-huh. you know, whatever title people want to call it, pseudo training aids versus real training aids, so on and so forth. Exactly. Um, yeah. Give your, you know, experience and, and the, the, the point of view that you bring up, you know, you and I've had conversations, but go ahead and share that and what you come through from that. Okay. First of all, what I, what I have um, garnered is that, and I've learned this from scientists is that, you know, for lack of a better term, it's not sure. rocket science. Um, step one, look at the MSDS sheets, the material safety data sheets that will tell you what is in the product. Mm-hmm. Yep. Right. And, um, gee, what am I training mm-hmm. on here? Um, you want to see that what's in the product, that the product contains the target material that you want the dog to identify. All right. What is it that I'm training, that I'm imprinting mm-hmm. my dog on? Um, so I think that's the first and most simple thing in, um, in assessing a yep. simulant. Now, um, I hear crazy claims like, well, just train on the simulant and don't train on explosives. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, train yeah. on, you know that um, you, the dog. It's better to train only on this, um, or it's better than training on the mm-hmm. real thing. Well, that's all. That's all promotional nonsense, of course. And um, you know, it, it's not based on an understanding mm-hmm. of behavior. Um, when we talk about science, as as Doctor Smith explained to me, science falls into two basic categories, and that is. Hard science and soft mm-hmm. science. Um, the hard sciences are things like chemistry, um, you know, math, you know, when we get into those sorts of things, um, versus psychology, which is a uh-huh. soft science. It's it's not an exact science, a behavior. Um, there's just variables sure. involved there. And when you get into the soft sciences, that's where expertise, frame of reference, experience, mm-hmm. um, you know, skill of timing, as we discussed before, are really important. Mm-hmm. And um, they can't be learned strictly in a clinical setting like a hard mm-hmm. science could, which is something like chemistry. So you have somebody who is an expert in hard science like yep. chemistry telling you this is better, only use this, this is what you should use uh-huh. for your dog. You know, train them with only this. Well. They don't understand the soft science part of it. They don't understand mm-hmm. the behavior. They don't understand how the dog learns better by exposing it to um, a target odor 
within, let's say, um, a variety of yeah. compounds, that same mm-hmm. target odor, um, as part of the training process, is taking a pure uh, explosive, uh, let's say a reagent grade, which is 98.5% yeah. pure, a crystalline mm-hmm. material, and, uh, and let's say you imprint on that. First of all, that's going to give you much better target odor than yeah. any simulant. There's no question about it. Because let's when you're talking about these simulants, oftentimes they come in a one gram. Or now I'm, I'm on the subject of sure. explosives now, sure. not drugs, um, uh, which is a little more, I think there's a little more science involved. Yeah, because <laughs> and that's not, that's not a negative. No, and it's like Dr. Know, Hall brought up. That's just yeah, what Dr. Pack. Hall brought up is, unfortunately, yeah. most funding for odor research goes towards the explosive, not the narcotic side. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's based on need, you know, and there's a need both ways. Um, and and also on complexity, and I think there's a lot more complexity in the explosive mm-hmm. side of it, um, which makes it a little more challenging. But um, we're talking about, let's say, a one-gram package mm-hmm. of material and within a, you know, um, a gas-permeable little envelope, mm-hmm. small envelope, and it's um, an ambient carrier material. For example, a uh-huh. silica, all right, a pure silica, and it's coated with pure target material mm-hmm. on there. Now, by coating all that silica, you have a very large surface area is created because each piece of silica sand is coated with the material. So that exponentially um, creates a, 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 a much larger surface area, a huge surface area in comparison to one gram, yeah. solid gram of the same material and it gives off a lot more vapor as a result nonetheless imagine one gram of pure um crystalline Mm -hmm. explosive which is solid explosive and it's also crystalline but it's pure well that's going to give off a lot more target vapor than one gram of the simulant so you can't say that the simulant is better than the explosive um, what I think the hard scientists who are involved in this um, try to say when they say that it gives off more or that it's uh, better or something mm-hmm. like that is that um, with our ex- explosives come in a plethora yeah. of compounds and that, you know, they're saying, well, you're training on the pure, you're not training on a compound, yeah. so it's better. You know, it's not true. It's not true. And I know that from anecdotal, you might call it anecdotal experience, and apparently that's being proven out now mm-hmm. in science, um, that by presenting the variety of compounds with the target mm-hmm. signature, the dog learns the skills of generalization. And I wrote a paper on that with Dr. Smith mm-hmm. years ago. It's also available on my website online. You can Everybody's welcome sure. to read these papers. You know, We just did this for the purpose yeah, of no, education for sure. and sharing and, um, you know, the concept of generalization is uh, taking something that's learned in one set of circumstances and applying it to another set of circumstances. We're talking about dogs, we're talking about scent yeah. generalization, applying the scent that they've learned in a, in a you know, in a yeah. different format. You, you train on the pure, now you train on mm-hmm. the compound. And they have six different compounds sure. that contain that. Well, the dog starts to learn the common denominator. It's reinforced each time. 
And now when the dog encounters an explosive compound, maybe it's one it's never encountered before, but it has the target mm -hmm. signature in it. The dog has become adept at identifying um, the target signature within the within yeah. a compound. And it just becomes better. And that's also why uh, older experienced dogs that have been maintained and trained properly are much better than green dogs in their identification process yeah. because they've just had the experience of uh, being trained on uh, yeah. training aids, belong to yep. different people, some kinds of sense associated with those other training aids. But they learn to recognize within that odor picture, yep. within that odor picture, the target signature that they're looking for, you know? So, um, no, it, yeah. And that was the enlightening part That's I right. got to see from, and, uh, what Dr. Hall's research did, which is obviously mirrored a lot of stuff that you guys had done in the past too, you know, and his work on him. He confirmed it. Yeah. It was really cool. Beautiful. Yeah. It was, it was yeah. exciting. And, yeah. you know, and, yeah. and it demystified some things too. The, the, the best thing I took out of it was, you know, when you first read it, you're thinking one thing, but as you go into it further, you realize, holy cow, it's the other way around. So what it was really, when you think yeah, about what was it, really yeah. cool was seeing the dogs that were <laughs> trained on the pure form train the variables within five days where the other ones that were trained on the, on the contaminated or the non-pure substance took a lot longer to figure out. They, they picked it up in some cases like, oh, I can find it, but it took them a lot longer to be proficient at it where that dog that was trained on the pure picked it up much faster despite the variable different contaminants that the uh, target was. Well, the dog that was initially, yeah, let's just clarify that. The dog that was initially mm -hmm. trained on mm -hmm. the pure. Correct. Yeah. Right. And then, then moved on yeah. to the contaminants, yeah, did it right? Way faster. Right. Yeah. No, so that, yeah. was, that was interesting. Yeah. You know, yeah. stuff that you, have, I, you and I have seen, but we didn't have the science where someone said, okay, I'm actually going to set up an experiment and let's see what happens. And that's, you know, what he was able to show through his research. So yeah, that was some good stuff. Yeah, when when I did, yeah, when I did that Israeli project, we had hundreds of dogs to work with. It was a large project, and as part of that, we were able to do field experiments yeah. with the dogs, and that was what that paper was based on. And as part of that field experiment, we kind of you know divided the dogs into three categories in the generalization skills, and that was because we saw they weren't mm -hmm. consistent. You know, some dogs. Um, were great generalizers, yeah. Oh, yeah. you know, they would generalize on yeah. another order very quickly. Of course, those dogs were also the ones that um, we had more non-productive alerts the ones that with. would pick out something and go, hey, let me try this. Yeah, because they were, right. Yeah, yeah, because, oh, this is similar. I'll hit on yeah. this, too. Um, so, you know, but they, they quickly learned, you know, they got past, you know, that very, very quickly. And then, you know, there were the dogs that, really didn't generalize at all. They'd been trained on, let's say, a pure, and then they didn't generalize onto the yeah, other. They'd walk yeah, not in. Not my training aid. But they very quickly, you, right, but real quickly yeah. using the clicker, yeah, they got it. They got it very quickly. And then there was the dogs that were, you know, fell in the middle that would show a change of behavior on the different compound, but were a little slow at coming, uh, you know, to final commitment mm -hmm. on it. And, you know, we reinforced them a couple times with the clicker. They got it right away. Yeah. That was it. The learning was fast. And that's why I did like using the clicker in the foundation training, because it really made things yeah. very clear uh, for the dog to understand. And, um, you know, I want to mention sure. something about all of this, though, that's important here. I want to say um, one of the things is, you know, 
Um, I, I'm going to share something okay, personal great. here. So I, um, I have a son who is uh, well within the autism mm -hmm. spectrum. Uh, my mm -hmm. son Harrison is a beautiful young man, and uh, he's, he is my soul. And um, uh, he's severely affected mm -hmm. by autism. And as a child, one of the methodologies they use with working with um, autistic children, children with autism, is um, uh, uh, a variation of Skinner, really, um, except its goal, its goal is toward independent mm -hmm. decision-making rather than response to command. But, um, and it's a, applied behavior analysis. And um, it, just as part of that whole experience, I immersed myself in, um, in knowledge about, uh, you know, whatever knowledge I had about behavior sure. before, I immersed myself in it because I wanted yeah, to help my son. And uh, there was so much that I learned from my son. My son has, in my life has been my mm -hmm. greatest teacher. He has been my greatest teacher. Um, you know, unfortunately, you know, he has paid a great consequence being in a position of teaching True. me. But uh, I've learned a lot, and, and that's helped me throughout all of my um, understanding of science and behavior. Um, the things that I learned in, in that process, in the journey. No, and that's one of the greatest things is, um, you know, many times we hear in the dog world, especially those with kids and things like that, there's so much that can be learned from working with children, you know, young children to children with the, the various, you know, afflictions that they go through. But the, the science yeah. there has bled into or helped us even understand dogs because as Dr. Uh, Brian Hare brings up, and the cognition research is that your dogs, right. our, our dogs cognitively are very similar to young children and how they make inferences right. and how they learn. And then through the research that he's been pushing through and bringing up into our world as dog handlers is many of the things that you just talked about a second ago with your son is how to allow, uh, whether it be a child or a dog to learn through their means and allowing them to, like you said, have those goals uh, or benchmarks to where they yeah. reach, where we, you know, stay out of it as much as possible to allow them to learn. We just kind of create the environment. And then within that environment, there's so right. many variables. And then within those variables is success. And versus the older methodology, which is we felt we had to control the child or the dog or what have you to learn. And we've really seen that self-learning is far better than anything that we can do to help in the sense of where we get hands-on. Right. Yeah. Self-discovery. And, and, and that's actually yeah. great that you brought that up because that was my next question was, you know, how much handler involvement is too much, but you kind of hit that right there is the more we stay out of it, and you can piggyback on this in a second, is the more we stay out, we, we just create the learning conditions. And within those the, that yeah. environment or that condition, there's success. And there's also the ability to make a mistake because making the mistake is still learning, you know, but the, the path to success is, right. is very easily found if just tried with a different uh, option or a different variable. But it's, it's what you brought up even earlier in the conversation when there's so many variables and so many things, all that typically leads to is frustration and stress. So a, a good learning model mm -hmm. is a model where 
the environment is set up by us as trainers, but the the whether it yes. be a child or or the dogs, they have a uh, few options. One option is successful. The other option or two is not successful, but it allows learning at the end of the day. And then we stayed out of it as the the administrators or the the the, the handler trainer part of it. We're out of the equation, allowing self discovery and allowing learning. And I'll let you kind of expand upon that yourself. Yeah. Well, I like to think we are heavily involved, but but I'm agreeing with you yeah. when I say that. We're heavily involved in the sense that we manipulate sure. the scenarios sure. for the learning. And that that's really where, um, you know, for example, um, yeah, we, you know, when we're teaching a dog to pattern through a car or a room or something like that in detection work, mm-hmm. you know, you can't, you know, trying to, Force the dog, um, you know, to, I mean, in the old days, and I still see it, oh, you yeah. still see it, where they got had the dog on the leash short, and they're walking oh, yeah. backwards, you know, with the dog in front of them, and they're presenting, um, and there's entities that still yep. teach that way, um, and it's so restrictive it's to the dog, and, um, and I mean, long ago, we learned, um, you know, stand back mm-hmm. and let the dog work. You know, yeah, we, we, you know, it's good to be able to direct the dog to an area um, and let mm-hmm. it do its job. The dog should be able to take some direction, but not to micromanage Correct. the dog while Correct. it's working. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, that's the problem is the micromanagement. And, you know, our involvement, uh, you know, to in the, in the learning process involves things like when we want a pattern. We do it through uh-huh. placing aids yep. in areas. You know, we want that dog to check the threshold mm-hmm. consistently. Place well, um, we do a certain mm-hmm. ratio of of the dog finding a schedule mm-hmm. of reinforcement yep. for the dog, behaviorally speaking, where it finds it there at the threshold. <clears throat> we do it too many times. We'll condition uh, non-productive alerts, but <clears throat> but we, you know, there's a ratio there. It's like the dog finds it a certain number of times there. Maybe it's even one time. The dog tends to remember where he found things before. So he starts working around a room through our training, utilizing aid placement. So in that sense, I think we're sure. heavily involved. Yeah. We're not heavily involved Correct. in micromanage. And, 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 you know, I think at this point here, it's we're, we're agreeing, explaining it using sure. different yes. terminology. We're absolutely well, involved in creating I the think, conditions. You know? We, we are absent right. we should be pulled away from controlling the animal as it learns those conditions. Yeah. Right. 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 And that, because when we control too much, you know, one of the things that I, you know, and, and listen, in the Middle East, one of the issues we had, and what, also when I was training, um, the, you know, early on, some of the initial Navy SEAL teams that I taught them was when they were working or when they were presenting, when the dog was on odor, um, even if they continue presenting uh, without changing the handler's behavior at all, the dog would not come off the odor. Uh, the dog would indicate the odor because I had handlers on that private uh, entity <coughs> um, project over there that they didn't always recognize when the dog was showing change of behavior. All right. And the dog's showing change of behavior and the handler is presenting the dog to keep going. And the dog will come off odor then, all right? So, um, 
we would teach the dog to do what I called intelligent disobedience. And the concept, you know, of intelligent disobedience, I, I associated with when they train seeing eye dogs. And when you train a seeing eye dog uh, to not cross busy traffic, all right, dog comes to the curb and there's cars coming and the handler doesn't see the cars and he tells the dog to keep going. A dog will refuse to cross the street if there's cars coming, all right? Which is the greatest example, I think, of intelligent disobedience right there. What they do with seeing eye dogs, you know, that's, that's an, an age-old, um, you know, masterful uh, training protocol. Um, but um, the same thing when we tell a dog to keep searching and it's on odor. Uh, that's the way I train the dogs. You know, when I say keep searching, I mean when you are presenting, let's say, an area um, for the dog to search, and you do have to, you know, self-discovery does have its limitations during a search, and that gets back to, you know, something in the drain pipe, and the dog didn't put his nose close enough. You know, we don't want to micromanage, but we want to be able to also tell the dog, hey, go check that drain pipe right there. You know, um, without doing a backwards, yeah, walking you know, exactly. Uh, well, it's funny, and, and it's and it's in, in a nutshell. Here's how I say it: is the information should come from the environment more so than come from the handler. And obedience to the odor, and yeah, you know, as the animal problem solves, it should problem solve trying things throughout the environment versus immediately looking to the handler for information source. And as we both have seen, when there's a lot of handler involvement, immediately when the dog struggles, it looks to the handler, hey, come help me out. And of course, real world is we're the last ones that have the answer to, to the extent of where, where, where yeah. I totally agree. Once we've, let's say, gone around an area, our job as the handler is to also evaluate the space and say, okay, is there anything the dog may have not right. checked or because we understand conditions better than dogs do, like how air moves and certain things like that. Hey, go here, check right. this real quick before we move on. So, yeah. Right. A productive area that you saw, maybe he didn't put his nose Correct. close enough Correct. to. And where odor can be contained within, you know, and he's really got to check the scene, mm -hmm. for example, you know, things like that. Um, and he wasn't, he just didn't get close enough to it. And you say, Hey, Go check that yep, seam over there, absolutely. buddy. You know, and then the dog goes back, checks the seam, and all of a sudden he'll Which hit on it. Which goes back maybe. to the point, as, um, as handlers, we need to understand how odor how odor works, how substance, you know, it, with yeah. the lack of understanding of that or just the, the false information that we follow or we believe can help, it will either help us become better handlers or it holds us back and we're less effective because we lack the information to allow that dog to be the best detection tool possible because we didn't understand the best way to utilize that dog to find that odor that's available right. because we didn't understand the chemistry, the science, or how odor moves and things like that. And we also have to understand how the dog sense, of course. Yep. You know, absolutely. of, well, you know, I mean, to something as simple and basic as the air current is carrying the odor in that direction. So my dog couldn't possibly have scented it from this position. Yeah. yeah. You know, so you need oh, to yeah. be able to kind of, you know, I mean, dog does, uh, you know, I don't believe in um, uh, not giving the dog any direction. And when mm -hmm. I say direction, I mean, off leash from a distance is fine, but just direct sure. the dog to an area. 
um, yep. to go check over here, or go check to put it in the right position, perhaps because of the air current, so that mm-hmm. they can get it. You know, you've probably seen the same things I've seen. I mean, you know, in a in a football stadium at um, at the Rose Bowl when we trained, mm-hmm. I saw a dog. Um, you know, I mean, we we placed odor out there from the far end of the stadium. Oh. Um, lead the handler to the odor. You know, because yeah, of the air current yeah, situation yeah. at the mm-hmm. time. Yep. And, um, yeah, it was, I mean, it's just an amazing thing to see. It, it truly that's is. That's over 100 yards. Yeah. And that's because the air currents were right, and um, mm-hmm. there was enough vapor there, and it just happened to be traveling, you know, to where the dog could catch the edge of the vapor plume mm-hmm. and lead it to the source. And I'll say that's one of the amazing things about dogs, that technology, uh, I don't know of any yeah, technology can't, that can't can replicate. do that. Yeah, right. no, catch exactly. the edge of a vapor plume, follow the gradient, yep. you know, or the gradient, the intensity of the odor mm-hmm. um, as it increases to the source, which is how dogs also know what direction to go when they're following an odor. Yeah. You know, but um, yeah. it's all exciting stuff. Absolutely. It's, and it's amazing to me with every dog I work and every dog I train, no matter how many of them. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So I have one last question, which yes. is what if you either were to go back in time and talk to yourself or just in general, talk to a, a brand new handler, what is some important lessons or advice you would give somebody or, or to your young self when you were uh, starting this? Oh, that's a <laughs> really good question, isn't it? Well, yeah, considering I talk to myself all the time, um, <laughs> let's see here. What would, what advice would I give to myself? Um, yeah, well, that incorporates what would I do differently. And sure. that's a little bit of a hard one. Um, I think, um, for me, yeah, develop my people skills better. <laughs> <laughs> so that I could be a better, I could be a better teacher. You know, okay. I think, I think okay. that, uh, I think that would be one of the most important things I could do. Um, sure. As far as the dog, really, when we're talking about just about dogs, yeah, be a dog um, handler. What's something that you would impart upon a dog handler now that you know for for the all the well, things that we've seen change in our industry? What is some good advice you would tell someone? I always tell handlers that you know they need to learn everything. I, I always say there's a law of threes and everything. Um, you know, the law of threes that I mentioned earlier about mm-hmm. creating an understanding with the dog, developing proficiency, then developing reliability. Three mm-hmm. steps in that, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and the law of three for handler advice, I would say, would be, you know, especially for explosive detection handlers, study the science, study the academics, learn, you know, from an academic basis. Mm-hmm. Um Learn from instructors. Learn different points of view, good and bad, you know, right or wrong. Mm-hmm. Learn so you understand the different sides of things, okay? And learn from every dog that you work with and every dog you observe. Don't stand around on the side just telling stories, you know, while the other guy works his dog. Yep. You know, watch what's going on there. I always, I never understood why the guys never watch, you know, I'll say, come watch the other dog and learn. Yeah. You yep. know, watch the other handler and learn. 
And um, a lot of some guys did that. A lot of guys didn't. And yeah. it always fascinated me to watch the dogs work, whether I was working them or somebody else was working them. And there's yeah. a lot to be learned from that. So, you know, my advice relates to learning. And I think those three factors, mm -hmm. you know, and, and when I say academically, you need to be up on current events and current knowledge, on yeah. current threats, um, you know, on, on, mm -hmm. on the science of the materials we work with. Yes. Um, it's all, it's just all about, you know, and that's what makes, that's what separates a good bomb dog handler, I think. Is um uh, is a uh, you know a mind that is seeking knowledge. I was to say that um, thirst for knowledge is, is thirst for be, knowledge, not just wanting yeah. to be a cowboy. Yep. Yeah. You know. Absolutely. Um. Yeah. Yeah. No. And so even, you, you. Yeah. Even the bite work world now, what makes mm -hmm. better bite work guys is guys that you know seek knowledge, not just are Absolutely. out there. You know, doing the cowboy. Not just throwing equipment on and getting bitten. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, so you mentioned many things, so like research articles and things that you've done. So tell us what you got going on. How can people get a hold of you? Where they go to? And we, of course, will put all these these links in the show notes. But what are the best ways to? You said find, where should they go to to find the articles? And how do they get a hold of you if they have further questions from this interview? Well, first of all, the website, which in many ways is outdated, by the way, but it has the art, it has articles on it. Go to the articles, and I'll tell you the name of the website in a moment here. Go to the articles, click on the articles, print them, download them, whatever you want. Um, there's a, the articles. There are some articles in there in which I believe the information was groundbreaking, and um, and applies to today. Um, one of the articles is how to construct a, a heuristic wall. It's real simple. Mm -hmm. um, you know. Uh, um, I don't sell that. You just can go to the hardware store and buy the materials and build your own. And it gives you a basic idea of how to do it. Um, the problem is that I think uh, the protocols need to be clarified more. But the, the, the um, website is detectiondogs.com. Detection with a D. Detectiondogs.com. All right? It's such yeah, an old that website notes. that I was able to get that name. That gives you something. Yeah, for sure. Um, uh, so you can go to that. You can go to my Instagram page under okay. my name, which is Mike Herstick, H-E-R-S like Sam, T like Tango, I-K. There's no C in it, okay? H-E-R-S yep. <laughs> like Sam, T like Tango, I-K. And I, and I will definitely link these in, in the show notes so that way they can follow you, they can uh, go to the website, get those articles. Uh, I'm sure off your website, I'm sure that's the easy way to find your email, to email you as well. Sure. Um, and but exciting thing that we're doing, though, however, is mm -hmm. I had a meeting this morning, and um, we're going to be doing an online, online uh, class format. All right? Nice. And... Um, you know, it's not going to be your online, well, take this course, you're now certified as a master canine trainer. Mm -hmm. you know, those are nonsense, of course, or as an sure. instructor or whatever. But what the classes will be is um, we'll be showing uh, videos and, and stills and, and explaining methodology on there for knowledge, nice. protocols, and, and, and that sort of thing. And we'll be offering that in, uh, in the 
We're just in the process of producing that. In the very near future, we'll be offering those. And you should be able to look all that up under my name. Um, Perfect. Very simple. Yeah. I'm sure it'll be linked to your website. And of course, if they follow you on social media, you'll be putting that out as it comes out. Yeah, I'll be putting it out on social media for sure. You know, Great. Um, especially on Instagram. But yeah, I know a lot of officers don't have Instagram. Use your wife's Instagram, you know? Yeah, no, it, it was as I had to learn now this whole new social media beast that because right. I was under a rock for four and a half years, not allowed to really do this stuff. Boy, it, it it's it is the venue for information, that's for sure. So, and I, again, I, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. No, 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 go ahead. Yeah. I, I, no. I particularly like LinkedIn, by the way, because it is a more professional format. Sure, you yeah. know, not just social, but uh, I'm going to be putting it on there too. So great. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Uh, no, no. I was just going to say again, thank you so much for coming on here and, and discussing the variety of topics that we did. And I hope all the listeners, you know, can take something away from the experience. Something like Mike has for all the years going from the project in Israel that really kind of baptized him by fire, the sense of you have to make sure the methods and training that you use work for real. And those lessons learned, as we discussed this episode, we hope help you, the listener, apply more sound training practices uh, that help you get results that work for whatever it is, whether you're a professional dog handler that works explosive or narcotics, or if you're in the, the sports scenting world, then you get to apply some lessons there that maybe uh, resonate for you. So... Um, Again, Mike, I thank you for coming on. We will definitely put that information to you on the show notes for those that need to get a hold of me. Um, my email address is Ford, F-O-R-D, at SilverStateK, the number nine, dot com. Again, comments, questions, concerns, whatever you want, email those to me. And we hope you guys enjoyed the episode. Mike, again, thank you. No, and, and Cameron, once again, thank you very much. And you know what? Uh, I just want to say, you're a champion within the industry, and I, I recognize that, and I appreciate that. I my my goal was to share information since kind of the industry kind of led me that way. Is I will more than happy to take that platform and use this now to share information for those that were like me and you that were always thirsty for knowledge to go out there. And now here's a source to get it. So that that's the payoff for me. Great, great, awesome. Well, again, thank you, listeners. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Well, that concludes episode eight. Again, I thank Mike for coming on the episode, sharing his experiences, sharing his thoughts and feelings, as well as giving us an insight on some vast levels of knowledge that he has learned from real-world application with detection dogs. So I hope everybody got something from that. If you have questions, comments, or concerns, feel free to email me again. My email address is Ford at SilverStateK9.com. F-O-R-D at SilverStateK, the number nine, dot com. Thanks for listening. And until the next episode, hope you guys enjoy Canines Talking Sense.